They say that everybody will always remember where they were when that event was occurring. I had been preaching down in Brazil, on the coast of Brazil, to a seminar with a group of Brazilian preachers gathered there. I was there teaching them on pastoral leadership for a week. We'd come back to the missionary's home, and we had packed our bags, and we were ready to leave for the airport within 15 or 20 minutes. And the missionary's daughter came up and had left the school nearby where she was attending and said something was happening in New York, that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. We turned on the television. Even in Brazil, you can get CNN. And we watched as the tower fell, and then the second tower fell. And I will never forget how I felt on that day. And the next couple of days, we were stranded there. And then we were allowed to fly. We flew into Atlanta. We flew into the Atlanta airport, and it was like we were the only people there. There was nobody there. We were one of the earliest planes, I guess, to arrive. And you look down those long corridors, and it was surreal. There was nobody there. You wouldn't see another human being. We went through customs in about five minutes because we were the only people on that one plane. And so I'll never forget where I was. I asked Jim on this 20th anniversary, I said, go ahead and play as graphic a video as you can because I don't want these young people to ever forget that. I hope that our country never will. In Virginia, the school board put out an um, instruction to the teachers that they were not to refer to the perpetrators of that event as radical Muslims. Uh, so we're, we're moving away from it in our thinking. And today I wanted you to relive that for a moment as I ask you a question. The question is this. Are we losing our courage in America? Are we losing our courage in America? When I see those pictures, I also, on the positive side, think of the acts of courage and the bravery and the heroism that accompanied that event. And yesterday, I watched a movie during the middle of the day. That would be a rarity for me, but it was a movie about Flight 93. And the 44 passengers on there who decided we're going to die. There's nothing we can do about it. So we're going to try to take this plane down because we have found that it's probably headed to the White House or to the capital of the United States. So if we're going to die, we're going to die courageously. And so they took that plane down. And I think of so many other acts of courage and bravery self-sacrificing bravery and courage. The story of Rick Riscarola, a security officer with Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley occupied 20 whole floors of the South Tower. And he had held training sessions on how to evacuate because he was so afraid that uh, something like this was going to happen. They had bombed the Trade Center back in the early 90s, as you remember. When the plane hit, 
Rick Riscarola began to go up and down those 20 fl flights of stairs with his bullhorn in his hand, his cell phone. He was the security officer, so he was shouting orders to everybody, get out of the building, evacuate, don't ride the elevator, go down the stairs. And he did that as long as there were people in his area. Then he began to go to other areas. He was last seen going up the 10th floor. Somebody said to him, Rick, we've got to get out of the building right now. He said, I will when we get all the people out. That's the last time he was ever seen. His body was not found. President Trump awarded Mr. Riscola the Presidential Citizens Medal posthumously a few years ago. And as we have studied the results of that day, he is credited with saving 2,687 people's lives. That's courage. That's bravery. That's the kind of manhood we need to be celebrating in America. And then on flight number 93 over Shanksville, Pennsylvania, there was 44 people on the plane. And... Todd Beamer, a young businessman, gathered the people in the back of the plane when, he, when it became apparent what was going to happen. He took a vote of the people, let's bring it down, and the people voted to do so. So all of them were heroes. They repeated the 23rd Psalm. They prayed the Lord's Prayer, and Todd Beamer said those famous words, let's roll. And they took the stewardess' cart and they rolled it down with all their might, and they punched through finally the door into the cabin. And we don't know all that happened. We think they killed one of the men flying the plane, but they so disoriented the others that the plane flew into the ground, and you know that story. Now, when I say or when I ask the question, are we losing our courage in America, I don't mean that nobody has any courage anymore. I'm talking in general, as a population of people, as a nation, are we losing our courage? Because there are pockets of courage, sure. Certain military units display courage. First responders display courage. Some medical personnel that have risked their life during COVID to work with people, they've displayed a great deal of courage. An occasional, very occasionally, a politician will stand against the crowd or some preacher will say something that would indicate courage. But by and large, in general terms, can it be said anymore that we're the land of the free and the home of the brave? At one time, courage and bravery, valor were common words. I probably need to define them because you don't ever hear them mentioned anymore. They were recognized and they were valued as one of the great values of American life. Among the Native American Indians, courage was the single most uh, valued quality that a person could have. Bravery and courage were their most important value. And then when we look back at our history, who is it that we respect so much? It's the brave, the courageous. 
George Washington leading in that battle that he led in the battle of Monongahela where he took three bullets through his clothing. Two horses were shot out from under him and he was unscathed and it flying right into the face of the enemy. Betsy Ross making a flag at the risk of her life because the British were walking up and down the streets and she was inside a lady upholsterer who was creating a flag for the new nation. Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, the people who defended the Alamo, the pioneers, thousands of men and women who got in a covered wagon and went across the country 2,000 miles to find a place, a land, a home in this country. Talk about courage. And we Christians, we have our examples of courage. Moses, who walked into the office of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and said, let my people go. And we have people like David, a little boy who, when he saw that nine-and-a-half-foot giant, he ran to him. It says he saw him, and he ran to him. He didn't run from the danger. He ran into the danger. And I think of the martyrs who knew they were dying and walked to their death. The first women martyrs, a young noble woman named Perpetua and Felicity, her pregnant assistant. Joan of Arc, a woman who displayed tremendous courage. Wilberforce, who fought the forces of slavery in England for his entire career in Parliament, some 40 or 50 years before winning the freedom of the slaves. I always think of Peter Cartwright, one of my kind of favorite. He was a frontier preacher here in the South. And in those days, there weren't very many church buildings on the New Prairie. So Peter Cartwright, a Methodist preacher, he, um, he would preach in the saloons most of the time in the evening because that's where the people were. <laughs> they asked him, why do you preach in the bar? He said, that's where the people are. And so we'd go in the bars and preach. And on a couple occasions, he said, I had to whip a drunk before I could preach. That's my kind of preacher. I'll tell you what, I like that. I had to whip a couple of drunks before I could preach tonight. And then there's our Lord Jesus Christ who set his face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem, to go up there to die for my sins. You see, the reason I bring up the subject is because of the cultural trends that are all working against us today, making us less courageous if you listen to the popular culture. Somebody asked me one time recently, is there anything you like about what's happening today? And I said, I'll have to think about it a while. Not much. Because a culture that is so evil that it now ridicules courage and valor and bravery and plays it down. I looked into the March 2018 edition of Psychology Today, the magazine, the official magazine of the American Psychological Association. 
there's an article in it. Now, this is a secular magazine, so it's not on my wavelength, but Psychology Today, March 18, 2018. The lead article is Feminizing Boys as We Masculinize Our Girls. And it says in here, and I'm quoting, the message of our culture is masculinity is a problem. And so we have to re-educate our boys according to the culture. And then I looked at other recent articles on the Internet that dealt with masculinity. The stigma of masculinity was one of them. Can men still be manly without being ashamed? Redefining masculinity, another article. Another article, the death of the alpha male, meaning the strong leader type. A new term has come into our culture, toxic masculinity. Toxic meaning poisonous. So it's poison to be a man, to act manly, to act with masculinity, according to the culture of the day. Again, I see the impact of broken families. I see the impact of a high percentage of boys being raised in homes without a man and no put down to you women. Who, God bless you ladies who are trying to do that, but it's, it's difficult, isn't it? You see, I have some strong feelings about that as a man who raised a son and have watched kids here in our church through the years. See, I think it's important that a boy needs to get out and roll on the ground and get dirty. Get so dirty that his mother won't let him in the house at night, makes him strip off, put him in the washing machine before he can come in the door. I mean really dirty, boy dirty. You know what I mean? I think that a boy will have to play outside all day long without a cell phone or any electronics. I think a little boy ought to learn to ride a stick horse. I think a little boy ought to learn to compete in sports. It's really important, mothers, that he learn to compete. He, learns, he needs to learn how to defend himself against a bully. He, learn, he needs to learn how to shoot a gun. And he needs to get a job before he's a man where he has to develop calluses on his hands before he goes back to school. He doesn't need to work in an office all summer. He needs to work because he needs to learn to do things that are unpleasant and do the kind of things he doesn't really want to do to have courage and valor and nobility in his life. The Chinese see the problem while we don't. The leader of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences said recently, quote, I'm quoting him, literary and artistic images Social fashions, dress wear are a reflection of the spirit of the times and the inner temperament of a nation. And he said these things lead to a low willingness to defend the country. Did you get that? What we're doing in America, the Chinese gentleman says, leads to a low willingness to defend the country. And he continues, we're going to need masculine men to meet the increased competition of the future. 
And just last week, probably many of you read it, just last week, the Chinese government issued a guideline that prohibits putting, quote, feminine men, it keeps them from appearing on Chinese national television. We don't want them to be the models, the role models for our young men. And of course, there's another trend, not the trend against male masculinity. There's another trend, it's political correctness. The fear of being labeled a racist or a homophobe or judgmental. Students now are afraid of getting a bad grade on their papers so they have to comply with what some professor requires of them. Or employees are afraid of losing a job if they go against the tide of the company's orders. And it's produced such an unhealthy conformity. Nobody wants to stand up against the mass. Nobody wants to exhibit courage anymore, the fear of standing alone. Somebody from our television audience mailed me a poem, and it said, God, give us men. The time demands strong minds, great hearts, true faith, and willing hands, men whom the lust of office does not kill, men whom the spoils of office cannot buy, men who possess opinions and a will, men who have honor and men who will not lie, men who can stand before a demagogue and damn his treacherous flatteries without winking, tall men sun-crowned, who live above the fog in public duty and in private thinking. And while the rabble with their thumb-worn creeds, their large professions, and their little deeds mingle in selfish strife, lo, freedom weeps. Wrong rules our land, and waiting justice sleeps. Wanted men. Men of courage, people of courage. Courage is a biblical value. I have my Bible open to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Courage is not just something that I came up with to give a little talk on Sunday morning. It's a biblical value, you understand. Deuteronomy chapter number 31. In verse 1, Moses now is an old man, 120 years old, his time has come to turn the reins of the country over to Joshua. But first he gathers all the people, verse 1. And Moses went and spake these words into, unto all of Israel. And in verse 6, he says to them, be strong. The whole, he's speaking to the whole nation. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee, and he will not fail thee nor forsake thee. He says this to the whole nation, a national address, if you will. And then in verse 7, he turns his attention to Joshua, who is to be his successor. Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him, in the sight of all of Israel. So he says this to him publicly. He, he wants the whole country to hear what he's charging Joshua to do. 
And what does he say? Be strong and of a good courage. And then if you will notice over in verse number 23, he again gives him this charge. He gave Joshua the son of Nun a charge, and he said to him, Be strong and of a good courage, for thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swear unto them, and I will be with thee, speaking for the Lord. Now go over to Joshua chapter 1, just a couple of pages to your right. And now it's not Joshua speaking, or pardon me, it's not Moses speaking, it's the Lord speaking. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, and what does he say to Joshua? Verse 6, be strong and of a good courage. Verse 7, only be thou strong and very courageous. Verse 9, have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, and neither be afraid, and don't be dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. And Joshua, just in case you didn't hear it, verse 18 only be strong and of a good courage, the last words of that verse. So over and over, four times the Lord says to Joshua, be of good courage. Four times Moses says to the nation and to Joshua, be strong. Eight times total, a concentrated effort to, get, to repetitively say courage is important. Courage is important. Courage is a biblical value. Courage is something every Christian should be cultivating in their life. And then we have the examples. We have David running to the giant, and this little shepherd boy taking out this giant man of war. We have Daniel who's told, you can't pray and he opened the shutters of his room, the Bible clearly says, so that everybody could. He wanted people to see he was in defiance of that ungodly order. And he got down on his knees three times a day as his custom was. And he called on the Lord. And then there was Esther, a woman of great, great courage. And she knew that to go into the presence of the king of Persia and not have him extend the scepter to invite her into that chamber, that she risked her very life. But she says, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. But I know that I've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Like the people on Flight 93. If we die, we die, but better die than to sit here and do nothing, to not have valor, to not have courage, to be, to be a captive of fear. I think of the apostles who, when they were told, you can't preach, they said, we can't do otherwise, and we ought to obey God rather than to obey man anyhow. And so they went and they preached. They did the work. 
that God had commanded them to do. They were not captive to their fears. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we don't think of this. People say, oh, I'm afraid as if it's a natural human quality. Well, it may be. I don't know. We all do experience it, don't we? But you understand that the Bible says that fear is a sin if we capitulate to it and if we give in to it. You read the book of Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, and it lists the people in hell. And the first thing is the fearful and the unbelieving. It's listed in the catalog of serious sins. Now, they're speaking specifically of a fear that is so great that a person won't accept Christ as their Savior. But understand, fear has a moral component attached to it. And we cannot live as prisoners of fear. The word courage comes from the Latin and from the French. It's the word for heart, cour, C-O-E-U-R, cour, they probably pronounce it. And the definition of courage is to have heart. The very word courage means heart, to act bravely, to choose to do the right thing in spite of the fears that grip us. We all are going to have fear, yes. But when we allow the fear to keep us from obeying the Lord, then that fear has turned into not just an emotion, but into sin itself. There's a moral component to fear. We have a choice. The choice is to do the right thing or to give in to our fear. So it's important that we understand courage on this day as we remember what happened 20 years ago. A very similar time for a very similar time to our times, though, was in 1527. Martin Luther was facing the plague, which was a pandemic every bit as, well, far more serious. It took, uh, the pandemic uh, of, of the plague actually killed something like 40% of the people that lived in Britain during, or in uh, Europe, pardon me, during that period of time. So we've seen nothing like that. We've seen a pandemic where 1% of the people or less have, have uh, succumbed to it. Think about living in a culture where 40% of the people are going to die before this is over. Martin Luther lived in that time in 1527. And he wrote a tract. In fact, there's a copy of that tract on the Internet. You could look it up and read it, but it's about 15 or 20 pages long. It, it'll take your, what he called a tract. I would call a book. <laughs> but... Uh, the name of it is Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. And what he was writing this for is that everybody were, was leaving the town where he lived. All the leadership, the mayor and all the council and all the people that had enough means were fleeing the town and leaving the sick and the poor and, and the people with problems, leaving them behind just to die, just abandoning them. And they came to Martin Luther, the head of Saxony at that time, the area he lived. And they said, you need to leave. You're one of our most valued citizens. He said, oh, no, I can't leave. 
and he wrote whether it's right to flee from a deadly plague. And I quote, he said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then he said, I will fumigate. (laughs) Real practical. Ask the Lord, pray, and then fumigate. Help purify the air. Administer medicine and take it myself. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my death or the death of any others. And if my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. This, I believe, is God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and it does not tempt God, end of quote. And then C.S. Lewis, during World War II, the United States, as you know, exploded the first atomic weapon and fear swept over the whole world. I remember not World War II, but I do remember those days as a little boy in the 50s and the 60s when we would have drills in school if there was going to, you know, as if we were going to practice for uh, surviving a nuclear attack. And they always told us, get under the desk. And now I think, what in the world would it? <laughs> that desk was going to do a lot of good if, I, if we were. <laughs> it was always, get under the desk, kids. And even then, there, there was this fear And C.S. Lewis, the great writer, teacher of English at Oxford, he wrote, how are we to live in an atomic age? And I quote again, in one way, we think a great deal too much about the atom bomb. I am tempted to reply to the question, how are we to live in an atomic age? Why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in the Viking Age when the raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat at night. Or indeed, as you are already living in this age of cancer, this age of air raids, this age of railroad accidents, or this age of motor accidents, In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us are going to die in unpleasant ways. And if we're all going to be destroyed by an atom bomb, then let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing something sensible and human, like praying and working and teaching or bathing the children, but not huddled together like frightened sheep in the corner. Amen and amen. So how are you and I to live in this age of fear? Second Timothy chapter number 1. And I preached on this at the beginning of COVID, 
But I surely didn't exhaust the truth of this wonderful text. It'd be a good one for you to commit to memory, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy's a young preacher, and a young preacher who appears to not have much courage. In fact, he's come down through the centuries to be known as Timid Timothy. So apparently, Timothy had some need of courage in his life, and the Apostle Paul recognized this. And what were the times like that Timothy lived under? Well, he lived under Nero, and Nero was one of the most beastly, cruel, uh, uh, despots and tyrants that ever lived in all of history. And... Nero, of course, was the one who uh, instigated the first great tribulation or persecution against the Christians. In 64 AD, there was a fire, and it burnt almost the whole city of London. Some people have claimed that, that Nero actually had the fire set. Whether he did or not, we really don't know, but we know it was not above his morals to do something like that. And after the whole city had burned, then Nero begins to blame the Christians, the small Christian community that lived there. And they began to persecute the Christians. If you go down to verse number 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Paul's a prisoner. He's been arrested and put into the dungeon, the Mamertine prison, a dungeon in in London, and he's there because he's a Christian, because he's a preacher of the gospel. And this is the atmosphere that they lived in at that time. Nero blamed that fire on the Christians, and there's a wholesale persecution of God's people. And Paul rebukes Timothy in a fashion. He's gentle with it, but it's a rebuke. Look at verse 7 again. God has not given us the spirit of fear. The inference is that he's, he's having to correct Timothy, who is timid here. He's not courageous here. He's, not, he's, he's bound by his fears. And Paul said, God didn't give you the spirit of fear, Timothy. The spirit there, the word, that's not the Holy Spirit, of course. That's an attitude or an emotion of fear. And as I've said Fear is a natural reaction we all have to protect ourselves, but if we allow it to take over and control our lives, it can become sinful. And so Paul is writing to this young preacher, this young man he had taken on his missionary journeys with him. He had mentored him and discipled him and taught him and loved him. He's now the pastor of the church at Ephesus, a great, great church of a 1,000 people or more at that time. And Paul says to him, Timothy, you need to have courage. God doesn't give people the spirit of fear. Well, if God doesn't give the spirit of fear, where does it come from? Well, it comes from Satan. You say, do you really believe that Satan causes people to fear? Absolutely. Do you remember when uh, Ananias sinned in Acts chapter number 5? 
Peter came to Ananias and he said, Ananias, don't you recognize something here? Satan has filled your heart with the ideas of doing this. The thoughts, the ideas that you have had and acted out here, they came from Satan. Satan led you to do this. What's my point? The point is Satan can put a thought in a person's mind. And when he takes the events of the day, the media, the, 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 you know, the, the news that people are watching, the memories that they have, the pictures of those towers falling or whatever it may be, Satan can take that thought and cause an emotion, a feeling, and we move from feelings then to actions. The thought is fathered to the deed. And before long, that thought that creates that emotion is dominating and controlling our life. And we go back and we say, where did that come from? It came, it was satanically placed there. So then Paul turns to the positive. After rebuking him, he says, God has given us three things to overcome our fear. He has given us power. God has given us the spirit of power. I look in Ephesians chapter 3. It talks about that we might be strengthened with might by his spirit in our inner man and the power that worketh in us. Have you prayed and said, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit, and I know if I'm filled with the Spirit, you're going to give me power in my life, power to deal with the fear in my life. And secondly, he says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love. That's the agape love, the willing sacrificial love, the giving of myself for the benefit of other people. That's what Martin Luther had when he refused to leave his village that was ravaged by the plague. That's what Todd Beamer had in his life when he said, let's roll. That's what those men running up the steps of that tower when it was about to fall down to rescue people, that's what they had in their life a spirit of love that we are willing to even give ourselves, our lives, for the benefit of other people. Agape love, the kind of love that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us. God has given us power. He's given us love. And he's given us a sound mind, a sober mind, the margin says. A mind that the mind has mastery over the emotions. Uh, a person who can control and discipline and master their thought life so that they will act in obedience to what the Lord wants them to do. The challenge of courage. But God has given us what we need to have it. Power, love, a sound mind. The courage to do our duty and the courage to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ in a culture and an age has turned its back on our Savior. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.